Okay, well, Andy already mentioned it. We've been doing a series on marriage, and we're going to pause just for a brief moment. Unlike Henley, I'm not going to give you an eight-week series, 12-week series. We get one sermon, maybe about 30 minutes on singleness. And this is really important. This applies to those who are unmarried, divorcees, widows, widowers. We're going to talk about those who are not currently in the experience of marriage. And it's really important because if you are a single person, what you probably experience most days is this pull. Uh, You feel like you're being pulled in two different directions. You're being pulled in one direction by the world and our society, and another direction by church culture. Here's what I mean. Uh, In the world, we tend to receive this, this message that your life is over or your life ends when you get married. In other words, our world or our society makes an idol out of sex out of lust, and so our world says you need to live a life of independence, autonomy, do what you want, sleep with whoever you want, okay, live a life of independence. I'm going to try to give you some examples just from pop culture and Hollywood, uh, but think about it, there, there, this is where, you know, if I'm giving this talk on campus, this is when we turn up Beyonce right now and we start singing about all the single ladies, so we need to, need to turn up in the club, if you don't know what that means, ask your grandkids, okay? <laughs> there, there's an old Will Ferrell movie where he's actually getting married, and, and during the wedding ceremony, he's standing there, he's seeing his bride approach, and one of his groomsmen starts whispering in his ear, he says, you need to walk away from this ASAP. He says, you need to get out, it's now or never. And Will Ferrell turns on him, he says, hey man, she's 30 yards away. And he's like, get out while you're still single. See, this is the world's view, the world's perspective on marriage, because we're all about independence, and so we need to stay single, hook up with whoever you want. If you do get into a relationship, don't have a title, because you don't want any commitment, nothing holding you down. So very often, a lot of our singles, they graduate from college, and they say, I want to travel. I want to buy whatever I want. I want to get the car, the clothes of my dreams. I'm going to hustle. I'm going to grind. I'm going to work my way up the corporate ladder because my singleness, they're the best years of my life, and it's all about me. Okay? So that's what the world says. But then we come over to the church. Okay? And I'm going to use church with air quotes. This is more church culture. This is more of a feel. And oftentimes, in the world, we feel like our life ends with marriage. In the church, we feel what? that our life is over without marriage, okay? Because if the world tends to idolize sex and lust and independence, the church oftentimes can make an idol out of marital love. Not necessarily sex, but actually finding your soulmate. See, what the church often champions is a life of dependence. The church tends to think, if I can just marry this person, date this type of girl, be pursued by by this man, then I'll finally be happy. I'll experience goodness and fulfillment. Give you another Hollywood example. Uh, think about the movie Jerry Maguire. I think Henley referenced this last, last week. But remember when Jerry turns all right, to his soon-to-be wife, he says what? You complete me. As if to say, without you in my life, I'm incomplete. I'm insufficient. I, 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 I'm not all here. I need you to fulfill me and to make me happy. Now, here's what's really interesting. Okay, and you might feel this if you're single. I'm being pulled in two directions. Should I live for sex and independence or should I live for marriage and finding a soulmate? But whether you're living for sex or a soulmate, do you see at its core, it's two different messages. It all comes back to what? It all comes back to me. 
right? Life is about me, and I need someone to meet my needs. It could be my sexual needs, my relational needs, my emotional needs, but life is about me. And do you see this? Both perspectives, if you embrace them, will actually destroy your marriage. Because if you make an idol out of independence or sex, will you ever be able to enter into a covenant? Will you ever be faithful until death does you part? No. You'll divorce. You'll back out. You can't commit. But also if you enter into a marriage and you made an idol out of having a soulmate or being in relationship, and this is what Henley talked about last week, your expectations will be what? They'll be too high. And you'll be asking your spouse to play a role that only God himself can. And so against this backdrop, against these two poles, we meet a man named Jesus. And we worship this man. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus was the God-man, the most satisfied, fulfilled, free human that has ever walked this planet. And yet he was what? He was unmarried and he was a virgin. You ever thought about that? He never had sex and he never had a soulmate. He was a 33-year-old virgin and we worship him as the Lord of the universe. So this is why we're talking about singleness. Point number one. Okay, why are we talking about singleness? Is that Jesus was single. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And when we talk about Jesus, we're talking, I already said it, about a 33-year-old unmarried virgin. And he is the Lord of Lords. On top of that, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, which was written by who? Help me out. Okay, Paul. Paul was also what? Paul was single. And he had a lot of good thoughts about marriage. Would you agree with that? And here's what we're going to see in the the book of Corinthians or the letter to Corinth that Paul writes. Paul actually lists out some of the sufferings that he experiences. He talks about being shipwrecked and being imprisoned and being stoned. He never mentions singleness as suffering. In fact, what we're about to see is that Paul mentions singleness as a gift. He was thankful for his singleness. Point number two, most of us are staying single longer than ever before. Any other generation in U.S. history, talk to your parents, your grandparents, or your great-grandparents, most of them got married in their early 20s. Now most people today get married in their late 20s or even early 30s, so we're staying single or unmarried longer than ever, and if you don't do singleness right, you probably won't do marriage right. But on top of that, even for our married people in the room, okay, I would say you've gotten about five or six weeks on marriage. We can talk about singleness. But on top of that, you've got single friends and you're raising young boys and young girls. And hopefully, Lord willing, you want to mentor them, raise them, disciple them so they become godly young single men and single women. Point number three, why are we talking about singleness? Because I believe it is the clearest picture that a relationship with Jesus is all satisfying and fulfilling. In a world that makes an idol out of lust, out of sex, and finding a soulmate, being a content, God-glorifying single person is the clearest picture that a relationship with Jesus is all we need. Let me give you one quote. You can think about it this way. We've been doing this series on marriage, and Paul says this about marriage in Ephesians 5. It's about two becoming one flesh. Do you remember this? And Paul says this is a mystery, and it's profound, and he says that it refers to who? To Jesus and the church. In other words, the main point or the main purpose of marriage is to reveal something about the nature of the gospel. 
It's supposed to be a taste, a hint, a glimpse into the unconditional love that Jesus has for the church. In other words, when you, say the, when you see the way that I love my wife or my wife loves me, you should, be, you should be able to say, it ain't perfect, it's not exact, but that's a hint of Christ and his love for me. What about singleness? This is a quote from a from an, uh, prolific author, uh, also a man in ministry named Sam Albury. He is also single, and he says this. He says this, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. So what is he saying? That marriage shows us the shape or the nature of Jesus and his love for the church. So here's what marriage reveals to the world, is that Jesus loves me until death doesn't part. It's covenantal, it's unconditional. And so in the same way, singleness, it demonstrates or reveals to the world the sufficiency of Jesus. Here's what it screams, is that Jesus is enough. He's all I need in a world that's crazy about sex and relationships. So here's what we want to do this morning. We're going to elevate our view of singleness. Singleness is not something to endure. It's not a punishment. It's not a penalty. Dare I say, it's a gift. It's a gift from God, and we want to steward it well, and we want to make it count. We got anybody in the room today who's maybe like a high school senior, college senior? Okay, you can raise your hand. Okay, maybe don't raise your hand. Just keep it down. That might be a little embarrassing. Okay, but, but do you remember... Okay, when you got to your senior year, maybe in high school and college, it sort of changes your perspective. You, you start to approach the classroom and relationships and practices differently because you start to say things like what? It's my senior season. It's my last first day of school. It's my last football season. It's my last prom. And so you try to savor it, make the most of it because you recognize this is the last go round. It's my last time. But we've got to have the same approach or perspective on singleness. That this is a special season of life. And for some of us, us, it's four years, it's five years, it's ten years, it's twenty years. But we've got to have this perspective that I don't want to waste it. I want to make my singleness count. So here's where we're going to turn this morning. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 7. We'll have the Bible verses on the slide, but you can open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 7. And this is a letter... That a single man, Paul, one of the the greatest teachers and preachers this world has ever known, he writes a letter to a church that has a very distorted view on sex and marriage and singleness. And so this is actually a loving correction, okay, from a single man to a church that has jacked up views on marriage. Just like our day and age, okay, the Corinthian church had made an idol out of sex. In fact, just down the road from their church, Guess what there was? A temple to Aphrodite, the god of love. And how did you worship Aphrodite? There were 1,000 temple prostitutes. On top of that, in this letter, Paul actually rebukes a young man for having an intimate relationship with his uh, stepmother. Okay? So this was pretty dysfunctional. But then on top of that, they also made an idol out of marriage because there was big beef, division, there was tension conflict and boasting in the church. And you want to know what lines it fell on? It had everything to do with relationships. See, the married people were looking out in the church and they were saying, we're married and you're not. You single people, you need to get it together. And there was division between the divorcees and the widows, but there was all this relational tension within the church. 
So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to read verses 6 through 9. It says this, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul was what? He was single. He says this, But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So do you see how this begins? Paul says this, this isn't a command. This is my preference. This is my wisdom. But he talks about marriage and singleness and says they're both what? They're both what? Help me out. They're both what? They're both gifts. It's not one's a gift and the other's a punishment. They're both gifts. So you can think about it this way. We don't tend to think of being unmarried or singled as a gift. I, I tend to view it this way. Uh, th- think if I were to give a gift to my three-year-old son. Let's go to the next slide. And, and I just absolutely break my budget. And on Christmas morning, I get my three-year-old son, Jake, uh, not an old man. Do we, do we have a picture of a Rolex watch? That would be, okay. If we don't. If we don't, that's on me because I messed up the PowerPoints. Okay, so you can just visualize a beautiful, one-of-a-kind, highly expensive Rolex watch. If I give that to my three-year-old son, okay, and I say, Jake, Daddy got you a Rolex. It's got diamonds. It's got gold. It's got platinum. It's priceless. What is my three-year-old son going to say? Okay, now he might wear it for a day, but inevitably... It's going to become what every other toy in my house becomes, something to throw at his sister, right? And I'd be willing to bet if I were to put a monster truck on this side of the room and a Rolex watch on this side of the room, okay, in in a three-year-old mind, there's nothing better than a toy monster truck. So my three-year-old would say, even though it is a gift, this Rolex watch, it doesn't seem like a gift. Because the value is not apparent to him. Because in his worldview, there's nothing better than a monster truck. But here's what I would do if I'm a good dad. I would say, Jake, over time, okay, daddy's going to show you, reveal you. You're going to get older. You're going to get wiser. You're going to become more mature. And you're going to see the value of this gift. Okay? It's the exact same thing with singleness. Now, before we dive into the gift of singleness, one distinction we need to make is there's actually a difference between the condition of singleness and the gift of singleness, or you might have heard some people say the gift of celibacy, okay? So when we talk about the gift of singleness, this is a more semi or permanent status, and here's what it doesn't mean. This is what the gift of singleness is not. It doesn't mean you're asexual. It doesn't mean you're socially awkward. It doesn't mean you have bad breath or that you're weird. It also doesn't mean that you've taken some public vow before God and the church and say, I embrace singleness. That's not what it means. There's no heroic decision. Here's what it means. It just means this. It's pretty basic. It's pretty simple that you are extra comfortable being single and you desire to devote your life to working for God. That's what it means. Now let's go back to the old man. You might be wondering, who is this old man? Is your grandfather? He's not. He's a man named John Stott. Anybody familiar with a man named John Stott? So here's the thing. Anytime a pastor gets up here and preaches, I guarantee you he has at least consulted or read a commentary written by John Stott. John Stott's one of the, more, the, the foremost uh, Bible scholars and commenters that the world has ever known. Do you know this? John Stott was single 
until the day he died at the age of 90. That was about 10 years ago. And I thought this was pretty helpful. As he re- John Stott actually reflects on his singleness, and he would say this. In my 20s and 30s, he was a Brit. I'm not going to do his voice or his accent. But he would say, I expected to marry. In fact, he had several serious relationships. But he finally said at the age of 76, and I guess this is some sort of British phrase, he said, I'm on the shelf. I'm on the shelf, okay? And so my dating days are behind me, and he finally died at the age of 90. But here's what's really interesting. I told you he was a great Bible scholar. Jesus actually had something to say about singleness. In the ancient Near East, they talked about eunuchs. They talked about eunuchs. And you can actually read, I believe it's in Matthew 19, 11. In Matthew 19, 11, Jesus describes three types of singleness, And John Stott actually writes on this. He says there's three categories of singleness, or those who have been given the gift of celibacy. Jesus says this, some are from birth. Some are from birth. So this means there's some sort of physical or biological impediment that would prevent them from being married. It's more of an internal block. Then Jesus says, some are made eunuchs by men. This is more external. In the ancient Near East, this was an awful practice, but it literally was forced castration. But this means in our day and age, there's some sort of external or circumstantial issue that's preventing me from getting married. It could be I live in a very remote or rural part of the world. It could be I'm caring for my elderly parents, and I don't have the ability to date or get married. But then finally, Jesus gives a final category. He says, some people stay eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And this was John Stott. At the age of 90, he reflected, I couldn't have traveled, I couldn't have written, I couldn't have preached as much if I was a married man and had children. And so when we think about individuals who stayed single, okay, you think about Mother Teresa. She stayed single for the sake of the kingdom. Even the first quote I read, a man named Sam Albury, Okay, he is focused on the kingdom of heaven. This is what we mean when we talk about the gift of singleness. I'll tell you a funny story. Do y'all like funny stories? Okay. You might be wondering, Ben, you work for Campus Outreach. Like, how do you even do hiring? How does this work? Well, believe it or not, okay, we actually have a hiring process. Uh, We get interviewed. We get vetted. And so when I was a senior in college, I filled out an application. And one part of the application is you have to uh, fill out an inventory of your spiritual gifts And I'll be honest, I'd been a Christian for about 15 months. I I was just had a very basic understanding of spiritual gifts, just enough to be dangerous. And you know what I did? Okay, I checked them all. I saw this thing on spiritual gifts. I saw the spiritual gifts of of help. I was like, well, I like helping people. That must be me. I saw the spiritual gift of leadership. I was like, what? You know, I have a position in my fraternity. That must be me. And I went through the entire inventory, and I literally checked every box. Okay, one of the spiritual gifts that they had written was the gift of celibacy. And once again, I thought to myself, well, I'm trying to stay sexually pure. I'm avoiding pornography. I'm trying to, you know, treat women with respect. I must have the gift of celibacy. So I've got my application. I go sit sit down with my Lord willing future employer, and he's actually reading over, you know, reading over the application. And he looks at me and he says, Ben, he goes, it says here, okay, that you have every spiritual gift. I say, you know, I've only been a Christian for almost two years, and I'm a work in progress. I'm growing and maturing, but yeah, I think I got most of them. And he goes, "Uh, well, this gift of celibacy. Tell me about this gift of celibacy. 
once again, I'm avoiding pornography. I'm treating women with respect. And he said, Ben, do you know what the gift of celibacy? I said, I'm going to be honest, I have no idea. And so he was very gracious. He explained what it was, okay? Uh, he educated me, okay? And they still offered me a job. So that's how Campus Outreach works. <laughs> that's how we do things. Uh, but, but here's what Paul says. He says, look, he says they're both gifts, just be where the Lord has placed you, embrace the season of life that you're in, and if you can't exercise control, if you're aflame with passion, then pursue marriage because they're both gifts. So let's get to the benefits of singleness. The benefits of singleness. I'm going to read a big chunk of Bible right here. This is verses 25 through 35. 25 through 35. Paul says this, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the, of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. His interests are divided. And the unmarried man or the betrothed woman is anxious, about, uh, is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please her husband. I say this for your benefit. Not to lay restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So this is where we'll wrap up. We've got three benefits of singleness. And once again, in verse 25, Paul says, look, I'm not quoting Jesus. This is my personal preference, but it's still the Word of God. He mentions three things. we we'll do a little alliteration. We're going to use the letter P. He mentions pressure. Verse 26, he mentions in view of present distress. Now, more than likely, this local church had experienced some sort of natural disaster. It could have been a drought, it could have been a flood, it could have been a famine. But the bottom line is this, food was very scarce, and many individuals in this church were facing starvation. This word distress, it literally means violence. There was persecution towards believers. And Paul describes in his life, he experienced tremendous difficulty. I mentioned this earlier, but he was shipwrecked. He was thrown in jail. He was stoned. At one point in this letter to Corinth, Paul says, it's almost like I was dying every day. So the point is this, the persecution that Paul experienced, it was intense and it was only increasing. And if you're in a part of the world, I know this doesn't necessarily resonate with believers in Carrollton, Georgia, and King's Chapel Presbyterian, but there are parts of the world where you can lose your life for following Jesus. And that fear and that dread only increases when you have a family. And so this is a great bit of advice for believers who are experiencing intense persecution in the world. I'll never forget, this is about 
two, three months ago, we were doing a summer Bible study at my house for college students. We had all sorts of different students that were showing up, and we had a young lady, her name was Victory, and she was from Nigeria. And I just asked this, we're we're going through a Bible study, and I asked, you know, just a typical conversation, you know, discussion question, And, and we were talking about how oftentimes trouble awakens our need to the Lord. And so I just asked this question, I said, hey, what hardship what experiences, what trouble have you gone through that has awakened your need for the Lord? And we had a lot of typical, you know, middle class, you know, southern answers. I had an injury. I experienced a breakup. You know, uh, I, I went through, you know, I, I failed this class. And then victory raised her hand, and guess what she said? She said, my parents were killed for worshiping Jesus. It's a young lady who lives in Carrollton, Georgia, is pursuing her degree, but she experienced, okay, real-life martyrdom, and there was incredible fear and dread because of a family. So first off, Paul says, in view of present distress or pressure, point number two is this, because there's greater problems. There's greater problems. Verse 28, he says, those who marry have worldly trouble, and I would spare you that. Now, this word trouble, if you get down to the original language, do you know what this word trouble means? It means wine press. It's a pretty interesting analogy. Do you know that how they made wine in the ancient Near East? They'd get a really big rock, they'd cover it in grapes, and on top of it, they'd put what? Another really big rock. And do you see what Paul is saying? I'm yet to use, use this in like a wedding ceremony, you know? It's not the most romantic picture, but Paul is saying, you want to know what real marriage is like? You want, to, you want to know what it feels like a lot of days? It's two sinners just being pressed together. Oftentimes, marriage feels like you're just being squeezed. And it's really just basic math. When you're single, you got to deal with how many people sin? Just one. But then you get married, and now you got to deal with what? Double the sin. Double the selfishness. Double the miscommunication. Okay? I think back to when I was single... I never had an internal debate as to where I'm gonna, what restaurant I'm going to eat at after lunch. It's never happened, okay? I, I never got a knockdown, drag-out fight with myself about what we're going to do over the weekend, okay? It just didn't happen, okay? Marriage invites problems into your life. And so once again, we hit this last week, but marriage cannot be the solution to loneliness or sex or purpose. It can only be because it's God's will for your life. Because marriage is primarily not about your happiness, it's about your holiness. And so often we buy into this deception that if I could just meet this person, if I could just find Mr. Right, then everything will be okay. But I'll just say this from my own perspective, the most miserable people I know are not single people. They're what? They're married people. Because they're single, excuse me, they're not single, but they feel alone. They feel alone. So Paul says, avoid the problems. And third and finally, he talks about preoccupation. This comes from verse 33. He says this, the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife. Do you see this? He says, by default, when you get married, okay, it's not a bad thing, but you will experience divided interest. You'll be distracted. So on the flip side, Paul says, if you're unmarried, if you're a widow, if you're a single, you should be what? undividedly focused on pleasing God. And so Paul gives us three benefits on being single or unmarried. He says it's a season of less pressure, 
fewer problems, and minimal preoccupation. And just like being a senior in high school or a senior in college, Paul is saying, don't waste it. Embrace it. Make the most of it. So let's get to a little application time, and then we'll wrap things up. Application time. Well, what if I'm not single? Okay? Remember, Paul says, stay married. Okay? That's application number one. But what if I'm married? What if I'm part of a family? What if I'm not single? Okay, well, my application for you to be, would be to engage with single people. Widows, divorcees, and the unmarried. And now you might be thinking to yourself, well, Ben, I'm just, I'm just too old. And I go to bed at like 7.30 p.m., and I'm pretty lame every night. I do Sudokus or watch, you know, Jeopardy reruns, and I don't know what TikTok is. There's no way, you know, a single person would want to hang out with me. And I get it, okay? Deep down, we all like and tend to hang out with people who are what? Just like us, who dress like us, who look like us, are in the same sort of season of life as us. But have you ever thought about this? The message of the gospel, okay, is that two very different groups can come together in relationship. Is that not right? I mean, this is the good news of the gospel. It's that a divine, all-powerful, holy, and righteous, and supernatural God enters into a relationship with finite, human, sinful, unrighteous people just like you and me. The gospel is a message that different parties, different people can be in relationship. And so if we're the church, if we're the body of Christ, if we're his chosen ones, we should be willing, excited, desirous to hang out with people who are different. Do you get that? People who root for different ball teams, people who vote for different politicians, people who have different skin tones and speak different languages, people in different tax brackets. For today, people who have different relationship statuses. So here's what I did. I did a little informal poll this week with my cell phone and some text messages. I reached out to some, not all, of our unmarried people in the church. And I just said, hey, if you had the microphone, if you had the podium, if you had five minutes to bang your fists on the table and and, and educate our church, what would you say? And here's what they said. So this is coming from the single people. They said this, I love it when married spend time with me, even when I'm the only single person. Another person said this, it means a lot just when I get invited to participate in everyday life activities with other families. Another single person says this, I want to be included. Don't make the assumption that I only like hanging out with single people. I want to interact with people outside of my age. Okay, and the last one was this, short and sweet. This was a young guy. He just said, I love my community group. Okay, so so I asked him, I said, well, if you could give some advice and some insight, you know, to our married people, what should they not do and what should they do? And really the only thing they said not to do is only ask them about their dating life. Okay, so this is like basic conversation skills right here. Okay, we can talk more than one subject. Okay, let's be curious, let's ask good questions, and let's not just ask people, are you dating somebody, or who are you talking to? Here's some things they said you should do, and most importantly, invite them to. They said, look, we want to eat meals with you, okay, there's a good plug, Uh, free food, okay, we want to have game nights with you. Invite us when your kids play games, when your kids have dances and recitals, invite us on your vacations, include us in your small groups. 
That's good advice for our church families. What about our single people or unmarried people? I'll just say this. So often our world, our culture obsesses over finding the one, discovering Mr. Right, as if there's only one person out of billions that God has prepared just for me. And instead of focusing on finding the one, because that's, uh, that, that's pretty tough, that's pretty difficult, that can lead to anxiety, I've heard people say it this way, don't focus on finding the one, focus on becoming the one. Okay, Andy Stanley, a pastor of Atlanta, says it this way, he says, um, are you the person you're looking for is looking for? Okay, are you the person you're looking for is looking for? Here's the best way I can describe it, Matthew 6, Jesus says this, seek first the kingdom of God and everything will be added to you. So here what I, here's what I encourage our young single people to do, is just seek the kingdom of God. Just run after Jesus. And after running after, when you're running after Jesus, here's what's going to happen. At some point, you're going to see a young man or young woman who's moving in the same direction. And you'll think to yourself, hey, we're running after the same goal line. But I'm going to go back to running after Jesus. Run, run, run. Sprint, sprint, sprint. And then you bump into this person again. And you can think to yourself, we're moving at the same pace. Same direction, same pace. Let me get back to running after Jesus. Seeking first his kingdom. And then you bump into them again. You're like, wow, they're pretty cute. I might want to ask them out. Those are the best relationships that are formed in the context of just seeking the kingdom of God. So we're always called to bear fruit for Jesus. We're always called to be fruitful for the kingdom of God. If you're single or unmarried, the question you should ask is how can I be especially fruitful for the kingdom of God? So consider where you live. You don't have a spouse. You don't have kids. Consider moving to a part of the world where they, where they have less access to the gospel. Consider your development. How can I grow? How can I learn? How can I be trained to be a more godly and fruitful disciple maker? Consider how you use your time. Are there people you can serve? Are there organizations you can commit to? Are, are there places in this church that, that you can join? Let me just say this. I've got to give a big shout out. If, you have pers- if your children are benefiting from the youth group, it's usually because there's some single godly people who are serving. I think about Ben Brown and Alex Holbrooks and Abby Mason, who are perfect examples of this, saying, I got extra time. I'm going to serve kids who aren't even my own. Okay, maybe give them a little, you know, clap, clap, right? But it's a great example. Because once again, our world says our singleness is all about me. I got to get mine. I got to get ahead. I, I, I got to use more, my resources to buy more things. But, but the Bible says life is about serving others, being selfless and sacrificial. And here's the dirty secret about marriage. Okay? Just standing at an altar, just reciting vows, it doesn't make you a selfless person, does it? It doesn't happen by magic. And so you've got to train yourself now not to be selfless, selfish, but selfless. Get lost in serving other people. Okay, so here's where we'll wrap it up. You know, earlier I made this comment that oftentimes we believe, and this is deception, that if I could just meet Mr. Right, if I could find my soulmate, then everything would just be okay. And that statement is mostly deceptive. But there's one exception to that rule. And that exception has a name. His name is Jesus, because Jesus is that person. Because brothers and sisters, Jesus can give you what no spouse, no boyfriend, no girlfriend, no husband, no wife, no bae can ever give you. He can give you unconditional relationship. 
See, Jesus gives us this promise that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus guarantees that I'm with you always until the end of the ages. Jesus says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. See, if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Jesus, that means you're part of the family of God. And if that's true in your life, then guess what? You can never be truly single. You ever thought about that? If I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit, I'll never experience true and utter singleness. Now, have you ever thought about this? Oftentimes, it's not easy being single, but usually it's hardest to be single when you're what? Experiencing pain. It, it could be physical pain, relational pain, emotional pain, because oftentimes when we're struggling and just suffering, we want what? We don't want to be alone. I just want somebody to give me some advice. I want somebody to listen to me. I just want somebody to shut their mouth and sit by me. I remember when I was single, so this is probably, you know, about 10 years ago, I tore my ACL playing intramural basketball. And so I was setting up my surgery to get my ACL repair. My surgery was on a Friday, and I didn't have a spouse, and I didn't know that you had to get actually picked up from the hospital. And I was like, well, I don't want to spend all weekend in the hospital. i got to find somebody. So I remember Thursday night, it dawned on me. I was living right next to a fraternity house. I walked over to the KA house. I tried to find the most sober guy I could. And I was like, hey, man, I need you to drive to Tanner Hospital tomorrow, right? That was tough. I was going through pain. I needed somebody with me, okay? And I picked up somewhat sober frat guy to pick me up. It worked out pretty well. But you know this? When we're going through pain, we don't want to be alone. Well, what about Jesus? You ever thought about this? When Jesus experienced pain, when Jesus experienced the most extreme pain in human history, he was truly, utterly, and completely single. Remember how the story starts? He goes to the garden to what? To pray. He invites Peter, James, and John to pray with him in his moment of need. He looks up and what are his his A1 from day one, his most loyal disciples, what are they doing? They're sleeping. And he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He leaves the garden. He's arrested. He's thinking, once again, I've given my life to these men for three years. And what do they do? They tuck toe and run. They abandon him. He's taken to trial. And at least Peter, I mean, Peter said the day before, he'll never leave me. He'll never abandon me, and Peter denies me and says, I never knew you, right in my face. And as Jesus approaches the hill, as he goes to the cross, if I put myself in his shoes, his sandals, I'm thinking this, hey, men might desert me, my disciples might abandon me because they're fickle, they're weak, they're soft, but I'll never be abandoned by God. I mean, this is the Father, right? This is the Father who I said, I and the Father are one. This is the Father who I've experienced perfect, unbroken unity with since eternity past. And yet on the cross, Jesus' hands are spread. And at the very end of his life, he doesn't whisper this. He, he doesn't just mention it. He screams it. It's guttural. It's from the heart. He screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does the word forsaken mean? It means I'm deserted. It means I'm isolated. I'm absolutely, utterly single and alone. So brothers, sisters, in order for you and I to be in a relationship with God, Jesus had to become spiritually single. See, on the cross, Jesus was left completely 
and totally alone in his moment of pain. And why did he do it? So that you and I can be restored. So whether you're unmarried, whether you're divorced, or a widow, why should we not waste our singleness? Well, because of Jesus, you may be single, but you're never alone. Let me pray. Dear Lord, I I, I do pray for our singles in the church. It's so easy to feel misunderstood and overlooked and to wonder, what what, what is my place in this church or this group or in this family? Lord, I pray that we would be a church that values, esteems the worth, the sacredness of singleness, that we would not despise it. Pray for our single people that they would really experience a spirit-empowered Uh, contentment in the season of life that you have them, that they would be especially fruitful for the kingdom of God. I pray for our married people, that we be a church that is marked by different people hanging out together, that that people in Carrollton City would be confused, curious, when they see old and young, married and unmarried people hanging out together, experiencing deep friendship. And more than anything, God, we thank you that we're never alone, that through your Spirit, Christ, you took on singleness, you became alone, so that we can be in a permanent, permanent, unconditional relationship with the Father. So we thank you, Lord, that you will never forsake us and you will never leave us alone. We pray that your name, amen.